All right, all right. It is time for the Cap of Ships podcast, where we try and cut through the fog of the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Cavishes podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner and the largest aggregator of U.S. Department of Defense cyber data. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. Coming up, it was budget week for the Pentagon, the week that an AUKUS submarine deal was announced between Australia, Britain, and the United States, and a week that saw Russian fighter jets bring down a large U.S. unmanned aircraft over the Black Sea. We'll bore into all of that and look for deeper meaning with the always perceptive naval analyst, Brian Clark. But first, a look at this week's naval news. The Pentagon released its fiscal 2024 defense budget request on March 13th, asking for more than $824 billion, of which nearly $256 billion is for the Department of the Navy. Inside that Navy budget is a request for nine ships, including three submarines, and 88 aircraft, including 35 F-35 Joint Strike Fighters and 15 CH-53 Kilo helicopters, along with 10 large unmanned aerial vehicles. Stand by for more details in the discussion portion of this podcast. Also on March 13th, the heads of state of Australia, the United Kingdom, and the United States met in San Diego to announce the initial results of the AUKUS, Australia-UK-US, partnership. The major aspects of the deal will see the U.S. selling three Virginia-class nuclear-powered submarines to Australia in the early 2030s. The AUKUS announcement received generally positive reviews in Australia, United Kingdom, and the U.S., but drew deep condemnation from the Chinese and Russian governments. Again, we'll dive deeper into AUKUS in just a few moments. China, Russia, and Iran on March 15th began a series of joint maritime exercises in the Gulf of Oman, all three countries announced. The exercises, dubbed Security Bond 2023, follow similar exercises held in 2022 and in 2019. Chinese and Russian warships were also recently in South Africa for exercises with that country's military and naval forces. Meanwhile, the Middle East region's largest maritime exercise, the U.S.-led International Maritime Exercise, wrapped up March 16th in Oman. The three-year-long Western Pacific deployment of two Northrop Grumman MQ-4 Charlie Triton unmanned long-range surveillance aircraft was concluded in March, the U.S. Navy announced March 16th. Two Tritons in a baseline configuration known as Integrated Functional Capability 3, or IFC-3, were operated by Unmanned Patrol Squadron 19 from Guam and Japan. The squadron will return later this year with more MQ-4Cs upgraded to the IFC-4 configuration to carry out initial operational capability assessment. And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news. All right, well, let's turn to the stuff. It has been a really busy week with several key developments that are going to drive future discussions and events throughout this year. With us to help sort it out is Brian Clark. Senior Fellow and Director of the Center for Defense Concepts and Technology at the Hudson Institute. Brian, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. You are one of the smartest people in town about naval stuff, and it's always good to have you on the show. This was obviously the budget week, $256 billion for the Department of the Navy. That's 202 for the Navy, 
53 for the U.S. Marine Corps. And there's a lot of stuff in it. Brian, how does this budget hit you? Well, Chris, you know, it was uh, impressive that the, you know, the Department of the Navy got the biggest uh, increase of uh, any of the services, or I guess the biggest share of any of the services, biggest increase in any of the services. But, uh, you know, fundamentally, it really, it still kind of fell short in some ways. Um, and even though that uh, Dr. Hicks portrayed this as a procurement heavy budget, um, it doesn't necessarily come through that way when you, when you read it. Um, so a couple of things. Um, so Navy funded, just consistent with CNO's uh, statements, you know, they really funded readiness pretty much to the full extent. So 90 to 100 percent, depending on what category of ship ops, ship maintenance, aircraft ops, aircraft maintenance uh, were all funded. Uh, personnel was funded, although, you know, end strength isn't really growing. Um, and uh, but when it comes to the actual you know, procurement part of the budget, uh, you know, shipbuilding really has a lot, has a, has a couple of interesting holes, you know, only going for the two DDGs instead of the three that we had uh, thought they might. Um, going for three SSNs, even though there's not necessarily, or rather two SSNs, even though we're not necessarily building two. Um, and then, you know, stopping the LPD line, which we uh, have, will no doubt talk about. Um, and then um, on, the, uh, uh, on the Marine Corps front, you know, an interesting aspect of this budget was, uh, Marine Corps is getting uh, MQ9s. They're, you know, they're they're, you know, supporting this transition to the new force design 2030. Um, they're starting to make some of the moves in terms of uh, eliminating, um, you know, some of the rotary wing, eliminating some of their uh, armored capabilities, um, so that you could see the Marine Corps force transition happening uh, very aggressively. Um, but on the Navy side, I'm not seeing much in terms of a force and transition. Yeah, or even a procurement-heavy budget, uh, as it was portrayed by defense leaders. So, you know, ships, aircraft, weapons, out of those major procurement categories, what uh, struck you as the biggest change, or maybe maybe something you might not have been expecting? Well, um, you know, so the Navy, so it, it, interesting, aircraft, I thought, was something that, you know, didn't get as much attention, but probably should have. You know, the Navy's um, uh, carrier aviation capacity is uh, in sort of dire straits. Um, you know, they've got readiness problems with the attack uh, air fleet, the F-35 and F-18 fleet, both parts, you know, F-35 and F-18 are suffering from operational availability concerns are both, you know, running much lower in terms of readiness than they were supposed to be. Um, F-18s are becoming more expensive and more difficult to go through the service life uh, modernization or uh, the service life extension process. F-35s have much lower readiness uh, than they were supposed to. Uh, and as a result, um, there, you know, there's a lot of concern about, do we have enough strike fighters to be able to fully populate air wings in the future? Um, and yet the Navy's choosing to uh, stop the uh, F-18 line um, and doesn't seem to be ramping up F-35 production. This is in part because F-35 has never been really something that the Navy embraced. Uh, so, the, so naval aviation, I think, is an interesting uh, particularly carrier aviation is an interesting hole <laughs> that's not getting filled. Um, there's a lot of money going towards what's likely to be the NGAD program, uh, which is the next generation air dominance. Um, but, uh, you know, it's unclear what the composition of that's going to be. And it's unclear whether we're just going to go build another really expensive aircraft that we're not going to be able to get in numbers. So aviation was really the thing that jumped out at me, although lots of people have been talking about shipbuilding. Right. Long range strike seems to be up a bit with weapons, tactical tomahawks. Um, right, right. You're definitely wrapping up the, 
Right. So ramping up production on the uh, you know traditional or what we'd call preferred strike weapons. So um, uh, Mer- Block 5, uh, Maritime Strike Tomahawk, uh, definitely ramping up. Um, LRASM ramping up. Uh, try to basically max out the production of those. Um, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, both those weapons are produced on what's, you know, largely a human-centric assembly line. Um, so it's not something that's mm-hmm. highly automated. And therefore, when the Navy says, hey, can you build, how many of these can you build? Well, the number ends up not being too many more than they've built in the past. Um, which sort of one thing that this, you know, draws into, you know, raises the question of is, well, how is the Navy, what alternatives is the Navy looking at to fill out its, uh, you know, munitions uh, inventory or its magazines. Um, they're buying SM6s. You know, obviously, that's becoming a, a preferred weapon because it's a multi-mission and it you know is BLS capable, but it's expensive. You know, and and they're you know although they're built on an automated production line, um, you're you're going to be constrained in how many you can buy when they're at you know about three million dollars a pop. Um, so so one question for the Navy is you know what's the plan to be able to engage large numbers of Chinese ships in a potential fight over the Taiwan Strait when, you know, we may not be able to afford or rather build uh, for no amount of money. There's no amount of money they can allow you to build them faster. More LRASMs, more maritime strike tomahawks, uh, and more SM6s. Um, There doesn't seem to be an alternative plan being pursued, although I know that out in the fleet, they're looking at alternatives. What do you make of, and and I know that in the past, you have done quite a number of studies of missile, um, missile capabilities certainly uh, U.S. and allied versus uh, Chinese and Russians. You've pointed out about the, you know, the, they outrange us um, to a great degree. Naval strike missile is a, miss, is, a, is a weapon that has really interested an awful lot of people for the last few years. And yet the Navy's procurement of that is overwhelmingly for the Marine, not the Navy. They're not going on ships. This is a pattern that's been going on for several years. 20, I'm, I'm looking at the chart right now. In, in 2022, they asked for the, the uh, 69 Marine missiles, only 32 on for, for ships. Right. 2023, 39 for ships, 115 for the Marines. This year, only 13 for ships, 90 for the Marines. I know this is a big element of force structure 2030, but you know a lot of people thought that was a real force multiplier thing, especially for LCSs. And we've been deploying LCSs to the West Pacific for several years now, armed with those, and it definitely gets the Chinese uh, Chinese attention. What do you? I mean, is the, is that a good balance? Is that is what? What do you make of that, really? Yeah. So the what the analysis is showing inside the Navy is that the naval strike missile, um, you know, does not give you the range to be able to outstick uh, an opponent. Um, that has a comparable weapon like the you know, YG-82 or something. So you're you're getting into basically a knife fight with somebody who's got the same length or maybe even longer knife. Um, so that's why you're seeing it you know, be shunted to the LCSs, which are you know, capable of carrying it, but can't really necessarily carry a longer range weapon, or the Marine Corps, which you know, as part of Force Design 2030, this gives them this ability to create more distributed fires from multiple axes that you know, even though they're not super long range, they're long enough to be able to, to get the job done in the South China Sea um, and give the, you know, give the Chinese something new to, to be concerned about. So that naval strike missile is a great fit for LCS, which can't carry anything more, and the, the Marines. Um, and I've also seen, you know, if you look at the budget and you look at last year's shipbuilding plan, um, you're, certainly the Navy is going to keep more of the LCS-2s out of the LCS family. Um, likely 
you know, put those predominantly towards the Western Pacific, as we're seeing there, they're based in San Diego. And then those are going to carry these naval strike missiles and essentially provide that at sea equivalent of what the Marines are doing ashore. You know, a more distributed fires capability from multiple axes, even though it doesn't necessarily outstick um, an opponent, they're there you know, to give you distributed fires. And the, the idea is LCS isn't going you know, one-on-one up against a uh, Luyang, it's probably multiple LCSs going up against some you know, naval formation of the Chinese. And in concert with the Marine Corps, they're creating a lot of complexity for the Chinese to address. So that's the, the operational scheme that they would be operating under. So Brian, um, smart people like you had been saying um, that you know this fit up is critical for not just the Navy but all of the uh, armed forces. Um, and so, since smart people like you were saying it, I, I was saying it as well on, on the podcast and looked at this budget with that in mind. And I have to say that I was really underwhelmed at um, the amount of capability and capacity that this budget, even if you are rosy about it, delivers in the next fiscal year, but really over the next four to five fiscal years. Is that a fair uh, view or am I missing something? You are absolutely on target there, Chris. I I mean, I've seen the same thing. So that's why I said, even though they said this is a procurement heavy budget, you know, it doesn't seem to really be that bad in in reality, at least for the Navy. Um, You know, the Navy got the biggest of the increases uh, among the services, you know, but again, that increase is still in the Navy's case, just keeping up, not even really keeping up with inflation. It's still a little bit short. Um, And um, the the issue is that the procurement that they're mounting is still not going to deliver until outside the fit up, right? So we're buying a a, a collection of ships that are not going to be useful until the 2030s at this point or late 2020s. And so it's likely the, the Navy be better served by putting more investment into readiness. You know, they've kind of maxed that out. They hope that trying to get operational availability up and get more ships in the fleet that are actually operating and deployed as well as aircraft. Um, and then um, and then trying to figure out how to uh, field capabilities more quickly to, to complement those existing manned platforms. So unmanned systems, uh, including new weapons that might uh, take us out of the traditional munitions manufacturing uh, complex. So those are the things that I was hoping to see more of is, you know, how are we going to generate more capacity in the near term through readiness and these alternative capabilities, rather than trying to you know, pour money into traditional acquisition that doesn't deliver for a decade? Is this budget savable by Congress? I know that you often get asked by members of Congress, as to other listeners of the podcast, you, you know, what what should they uh, focus on? What hard questions should they ask? I mean, are there enough ads possible on the congressional side to round this budget out so that it's not a, a loss? I think so. So, um, you know, the challenge in Congress is always you can't start a new program, you know, from scratch. So you kind of need to build, you know, fall in on whatever the services are doing. So one area where I think the Congress is not going to be able to help is on this idea of how do we get a unmanned complement to the manned force fielded more quickly and at scale. When you talk to operational commanders like Admiral Paparo out in the fleet, he wants more um, unmanned systems now to help him get the capacity to deal with the problem they're facing from Taiwan, or rather over Taiwan, uh, in the near term. Um, And he knows that the existing munitions complex, the existing force structure isn't going to get him there. Um, so Congress can't really help with that because those programs just aren't being structured and delivered by the Navy in this case 
um, in a way that allows Congress to ramp them up and get scale. Um, the area where I think Congress can help, though, is in putting more money into readiness and saying, maybe I think you know maybe you've inadequately uh, analyzed your readiness demands. Um, and even though you say you're at 90 to 100 percent, you know, we don't necessarily believe that that's the case because clearly the, the results don't show it. The fleet is not <laughs> deploying ships at, on the, at the rate they're supposed to based on the fleet response plan. And you clearly aren't putting enough money into readiness. So more money into readiness, which may mean putting more money into the ship repair and shipyard infrastructure to try to get more capacity sooner. And then the other part they can add uh, is um, try to add uh some more uh, ships on the back end, you know, so I could, I think, for example, the LPD line might be an opportunity. A lot of people have been talking about that. We found that LPDs are actually really useful as host platforms for the unmanned systems that the military will eventually buy. But the downside of that is that, again, that's not going to be something that necessarily helps in this decade. It'll help at the end or, or early part of the next decade. So before we... I'm sorry, Chris, uh, maybe we're going to the same spot. Let, let's talk about that LPD question. Is this strategic pause or the idea of a pause, is that out of this um, kind of head scratching thinking uh, about capacity when it comes to shipbuilding? I mean, is it, I mean, the CNO spoke this week at the McAleese conference. He shed a little bit of light on it. Um, the During the rollout, I would say that it was wasn't really well explained, but I mean, it, we've almost gotten ourselves into this kind of chicken and egg um, thinking with regard to shipbuilding, right? Like, you know, hey, they don't have capacity, therefore we won't ask them to do things. And I think when you talk to them, they say, well, we're not being asked to do things, so we can't build capacity. And then you see kind of head scratching things like putting a strategic pause on maybe one of the more critical assets that you would ask HII to build. I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah, Chris. So I, you know, if you view this budget through the lens of the Taiwan invasion being the the driver behind a lot of the defense budgeting decisions, um, it makes a lot more sense, right? So uh, LPD-17, probably not a huge player in defeating an invasion of Taiwan. Uh, it could play a role, like we said, as a host for unmanned systems that you know, might be deployed at scale and could help uh, you know, either you know, directly or using ISR help you know, defeat an invasion. You know, but they're not necessarily the key players, right? Submarines are the key players. Uh, destroyers will be a key player. Um, you know, aircraft carriers, obviously. And then, of course, there's Air Force air, air infrastructure, or rather Air Force force structure. Um, but I think if you view it through that lens, LPD send, tends to be a lower priority. So it's like one of the last ships you're going to buy when you're trying to go through and build your shipbuilding uh, plan. And, and you might find you don't have enough money left over when you get to the LPD. Um, and I think when you look at uh, decisions like um, the DDG versus SSN, same idea there is that we're going to go for three. You know, two SSNs, even though, though we're not necessarily building two per year, um, and we're going to you know down you know reduce to to the number of DDGs we buy because maybe they're not as important to the Taiwan invasion. Um, so I think we're seeing a lot of these decisions, which gets to the the issue that Congress raised last year, which is uh, the Navy is being focused on war fighting by OSD rather than focused on its main historical mission of presence and deterrence. And that's why they changed the Title X mission to try to capture that uh, presence demand. Um, but this budget doesn't reflect it. The budget really reflects a focus on the warfighting scenarios, and in particular, this one warfighting scenario. We have, we have a couple other things we want to get in here, um, so we got to get off the budget. Uh, we're we're going to get off that. I got to say, I don't I don't really I don't totally agree with everything you just said, Brian. I think the 
The Navy is flailing in a major way and trying to explain what's going on with LPD. They don't. They 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 can't explain it. They they're now changing their stories. It's only taken them three days to change the story because they didn't they didn't talk about cost at the beginning. Now they're to, now they're saying, oh well, it costs so much and the costs are rising. Well, if that's true, you didn't say that on Monday when you rolled the budget out. Now on Wednesday they oh but oh but this okay so you're scrambling to come up with stuff to justify this. That's a bad argument. If it was valid, you just, you just started off with that. The other part is, I don't, I don't know where this is coming from. I don't know if it's really coming from the Navy. I think it's coming from OSD. I think it's coming from the uh, Deputy Secretary of Defense or CAPE. Um, I'm not even sure what the point is. And there's no pause going on here. You don't stop production for six years and call it a pause. That's ending it. You just zeroed it out. You canceled it. Anything else is just another euphemism. So aside yeah, from so that, Chris, Chris I, how do you really feel? That's right. Chris, I, I agree with you. Um, my point when saying that the budget should be viewed through this lens of the Taiwan invasion is that's being driven by OSD. So, you know, if the Navy built this budget and didn't have OSD, you know, stepping in to you know, change their priorities, um, I think we would have seen a different budget you know, that reflected more of this focus on presence. But I think what we got is, you know, a series of changes that were introduced, you know, probably by Cape, but others to try to focus this on the warfighting demand. Uh, because that's the lens through which they want to judge it, uh, because it's easy and it's straightforward. Yeah, I, I do like how they brought forward the uh, submarine tender replacement, even though there's been no award, there's been no chosen design and right. no award, and, and yet they're going to pay for that in this budget. And that, guess what, kids, is the same price as an LPD. Okay, so enough of that. Moving on. Um, AUKUS, Australia, United Kingdom, U.S., big announcement this week in uh, on San Diego where the heads of all three countries came together, as well as the heads of the navies, to uh, stand, stand and appear by submarines and talk about this new deal where we are going to sell some of our very, very valuable um, and relatively scarce Virginia-class submarines to the Australians at some point in a few years. Um, and, of course, in the meantime, uh, we're already beginning interoperability with the Australians uh, to a higher degree, both the United States and the and the world, the World Navy, the British Royal Navy, um, and eventually we're going to we're going to sell them at least three, maybe five Virginias, and then a follow-on class will be built by Australia and Britain, um, AUKUS S AUKUS SSN or SSN AUKUS um, that both both of those countries will build. Um, Brian, you you know in in your active duty Navy career. Um, you were a chief engineer of two nuclear submarines. You were operations officer at the Navy's nuclear power training unit. You know a lot about running nuclear powered submarines. How much of a learning curve did Australians face across the board here? I mean, training, operations, construction, maintenance, budget support, the whole package. Uh, it's a pretty substantial one, you know, Chris, as you'd expect, right? So, uh, and what, you know, training an individual person to operate a nuclear power plant. Um, is not necessarily that hard. You know, you go through a year of training, you know, six months uh, classroom, six months practical, and then you're, you're pretty much ready to go. And then you go to the ship and get qualified. Um, the challenge is having that whole infrastructure so that that person has a set of leadership, you know, behind him or her that can help guide them and answer questions. Um, and, you know, when things go wrong, you know, what is the, what do we do about this? So I think there's been a lot of focus on the, we're training these operators, we're putting them to sea on US and UK submarines, we're gonna get them familiar with operation of the plant. And that's obviously sort of the baseline, you have to do that. But the challenge is then having in Australia, this whole back office function like Naval Reactors provides for the US of 
who's overseeing the the maintenance planning and the infrastructure, who is um, you know providing engineering support, answering questions as they come up, and providing guidance on how you know things should be done. Um, you know because your plant manuals are not always going to answer every question that you have or every situation you have to address. So that's one big challenge. And then the other big challenge is on the uh, maintenance infrastructure side is the goal here is to have a full up uh, Australian capability to maintain nuclear submarines, you know, maybe at the, you know, even up to overhauls, but maybe between overhauls uh, in Australia, which is a substantial capacity. I mean, that's, you're talking, if you look at the US facilities, a couple thousand people, nuclear training, the ability to handle nuclear uh, material and nu radioactive waste. So that's a big stand up for a country that has no nuclear industry at all right now. Um, but it's feasible. I don't, I don't see, you know, there's no roadblocks to necessarily doing it, but it takes time. And that's why you're seeing the U.S. talk about a 2027 timeline before we're going to have rotationally or for deployed uh, submarines based in Australia that would leverage that infrastructure. And then you don't see until the 2030s you know, us selling submarines to them that they would then operate themselves. You like this plan, right? You, you think it's very doable as you as you just talked about. Um, and you think that each of the milestones can be achieved by the time that the administration has laid out? I, I do. I, I mean, I feel and I like the phased approach where it's, you know, the earlier phases are much more feasible and executable. So this first phase that we're going to increase port calls in Australia, no one's really arguing against that. I think every submariner is going to say that sounds like a great idea. Let's do that. Um, and then even this moving into this rotationally deployed uh, force that's going to be in Perth or at Stirling, um, that's very doable because let's say Australia is slow or is having challenges of getting their maintenance infrastructure up. We can take one of our tenders, uh, and this I think is part of why you saw, Chris, the introduction of the submarine tender replacement in this budget was to give us another tender potentially on tap to allow one of the tenders in Guam to go to Australia to take over that uh, that mission of you know, maintaining nuclear submarines uh, that are forward deployed. So I think there, you know, that even that second phase of forward deploying U.S. submarines to Australia, very feasible, even if we have to use a U.S. tender to help do it. And then when you get into that, you know, the third phase or the third and fourth phases, if you will, where you start talking about U.S. US submarines being sold to Australia, I see that as certainly being feasible by that 2030s timeframe. The question will be, is Australia still going to be willing to spend that money uh, in that time frame? I think they will, because that's going to be the only game in town and used Virginia classes are probably their best option. And at that point, we should you know, we should be able to say one way or the other, whether Australia is ready to at least man, train, uh, equip, you know, in concert with the U.S., you know, those submarines. Um, and then I think that last phase is the one that's actually most problematic of SSN AUKUS being built. Uh, to support Australia going forward. One, I don't think it's going to be really feasible to build those in Australia because of the, you know, you're building a big infrastructure to build, you know, whatever, a half dozen submarines. And then what does it do after that? Um, and then two, um, do you want to have two different submarine classes in such a small, you know, submarine fleet? Um, it may be better off for them just to buy Virginia classes and comp you know, complete their set. Um, so I think that's the one part that's really open-ended, which, but it's the farthest one into the future. So I think we go from things that are much more executable to things that are more uncertain, uh, which is a good way to have a plan built. So I, I'm pretty confident. I mean, I'm pretty optimistic. Is this a win loss or draw for our industrial base, right? I mean, everybody initially cheered it as it was going to be a win. Your thoughts on what this does in terms of helping or stretching, uh, the submarine industrial base. 
I think it's kind of a draw. So when, when, when they talk about Australia putting money into the U.S. Uh, submarine industrial base, um, they were very vague on, well, how does that happen? Because if you're Australia, why do you do that? Why do you want to give money to the U.S. submarine industrial base when you're having to build your own as well? Um, and what I think it turns out to be when we questioned them was that the money from selling U.S. submarines to Australia would be plowed into the U.S. industrial base, which I think is a good thing. I mean, that all makes sense. But again, that's not going to happen until the late 2020s. Um, or, or early 2030s. So you're you're talking it's going to be out in the future. And I think what's um, you know more likely is the industrial base will benefit from just the increased U.S. investment that we're that we've seen last year, the last couple of years, as well as in this budget where they put another couple billion dollars towards the submarine industrial base. So I think the submarine industrial base benefits from that. So it's an indirect benefit of AUKUS maybe, but I don't think we're going to see direct investment from Australia in our industrial base until we get to the point of selling them submarines. So let's switch to the last topic. We only have a couple minutes left, but we did want to uh, talk about it. Um, earlier this week, it was reported um, that a uh, MQ-9 Reaper drone was engaged by two Russian Su-27 aircraft while flying over international waters um, over the Black Sea. In the incident, the MQ-9 was uh, forced down, um, and this became kind of the latest uh, incident with the Russians involving, um, you, you know, our forces in and around the Black Sea, in and around support for Ukraine. I, I have two questions um, or two kind of ways that I've been thinking about it. I want to get your thought. One is, I guess you would say more on a um, an isolated incident. What does this mean for, um, you know, broader relations involving Russia and Ukraine and what, what does, you know, how should we view this in the context of, of US Russia? And then the second would be, and maybe this is a whole nother show, but how do we think about these engagements um, between unmanned and manned aircraft? And, you know, does this become causes belli uh, for, you know, some sort of retaliation or, or you know, outright conflict? Um, you know, your, your thoughts on this at, at, at the two different levels. Great question. So the... Um... You know, they've not made clear which version of the MQ-9 was out there. Some of those, some of the MQ-9s are actually able to fly in uh, regular airspace, and they have sense and avoid capabilities. So they try to avoid interactions with manned platforms, except in this case, the airplane just flew at it. Um, but so you know, it, it would try to avoid these interactions, and obviously was not not able to. So, th but then going beyond that, I think um, at the uh, you know kind of the the tactical level, this is just another example of the kind of Russian um, uh, aggressiveness that we've seen in other parts of the other airspace examples. So they've used electronic warfare against our aircraft. Uh, they've done flybys of, of our P-8s and our, um, our J-STARS and our, our airborne early warning aircraft. Um, so this, they would, they would argue this is just how they treat a manned or an unmanned aircraft versus a manned aircraft, which might be a little bit more aggressive and things like this might happen. They wouldn't be quite this aggressive with a manned aircraft. And I think it's just a, you know, it, it gets, you know, another example of uh, Russian uh, irresponsibility. Now, and we've lost, you know, multiple MQ-9s for various reasons over the last decade. Uh, we've lost at least two in Syria to hostile fire. Um, we've lost a, uh, an MQ-4 um, due to hostile fire from Iran. So these unmanned vehicles, you know, get treated as somewhat expendable, despite the fact that, you know, in some cases they're pretty expensive. So I don't think we're going to tra translate this, you know, tactical interaction into a strategic level impact. And I think what you're just going to see is it's part of the continued hostility between the U.S. and Russia um, playing out 
um, now in a different way because you've got a more expendable platform that we're you know using to you know engage forward, um, which uh, arguably that's that's a that's the, how they're supposed to be used. This is you know the system working at least from our perspective. It might you know what what the only thought that hits me now is this you know the the story continues to develop, and now the Russians are reported to uh, going to be trying to recover the wreckage. Um, that becomes stealing. Uh, because it's not abandoned. It, it remains U.S. government property. You know, it, it's at the bottom of the ocean. It doesn't matter how it got there. Um, it's still U.S. government property. That, that, that starts to get into a whole other sticky wicket of uh, what are we looking at here? But um, I guess it remains. Yeah, Chris. Seen. So, yeah, interesting, you know, like admiralty law covers this sort right. of thing. Um, and well, American uh, law does. We, we have an act of 2004 well, that, that uh, right, put that which, into law. Yeah. Right, which other which other countries don't necessarily pay attention to, right? So, um, but we've used this. We've we've uh, grabbed plenty of you know Soviet and other countries uh, uh, material and exploited it by doing the exact same thing. So we've picked up missiles and aircraft parts and and you know been able to use that for our intelligence gathering. And I think you know we argue that this is allowed under international law. If something's abandoned at sea, it's you know free game under salvage. Um, so the Russians are going to make that same case here that this, so international waters, when it's convenient for them and, you know, when, when we're operating there, they're going to argue that we're encroaching on their territory. So they're trying to have it both ways by saying they can salvage this while also arguing that it was in their airspace, um, you know, and, and they had to engage it, but, but they may still, you know, argue that this is allowed under national law because, you know, lots of countries do this sort of foreign material exploitation. All right, Brian, that is all the time we have time for. Actually, we went over. We went long because you are ridiculously interesting and just full of good information. All right, thanks again. Our guest has, has been Brian Clark. He is the director of the Center for Defense Concepts and Technology at Hudson Institute. Once again, Brian, thanks for coming. My pleasure, Chris. Thank you very much. Now hear this. Now hear this. And now Mr. Cervello with a bit of St. Patrick's Day naval wisdom. Thanks, Chris. Given that this week was the intersection of the budget rollout and St. Patrick's Day, I decided to take a different approach with my squawk. Because I can't buy each of you a green beer or a shot of Jameson, I thought a limerick might be a good way to humorously end the week while still pointedly capturing my concerns with the budget. Some will find this too cute or maybe even a bit irreverent. That's okay. Poetry isn't for everyone. So here goes. This year's budget from DOD doesn't grow short-term capacity. More ships go away with no weapons for today. I'm still worried about China's Navy. Happy St. Paddy's Day and Slancha. All right, Chris. That is pointedly capturing your concerns indeed. Well, folks, that does it for this week. The Cabbage Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is the largest producer of undersea unmanned vehicles in every class, making transoceanic missions possible. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye. Hey.